Hello, welcome to the Nourishing Liberty podcast, a podcast all about our food systems and how we fit into them. I'm your host, Liz Reitzig, and we have Rachel Mills, our co-host with us today. Rachel. Hello. Thanks for being here. And tell us, tell the audience, please, because sometimes we skim over this, but why are you here and what brings you here? Why is this a podcast for you? Our friendship brings me here. I'm here to learn from the fabulous Liz Reitzig about a piece of the uh, pie, the of the preparatory world and food systems and everything that is like a gap in my knowledge. Um, but my background is in politics and PR. Um, uh, Liz and I met when I was uh, the uh, congressional press secretary for Ron Paul. I did that for five years on Capitol Hill. Um, and then he retired and pretty much ever since then, I've been kind of in the sound money financial space. I write a lot about uh, precious metals and I am actually the new content, the director of content strategy for Lear Capital, which I'm very proud of. They um, advertise all over the place and very proud to be part of that and helping people secure their financial future with precious metals just like you help people secure their food future with the things that you do about supply chains and, and, you know, natural foods and backyard gardens and all of that lovely stuff that you do. So I'm, I'm here to learn from you mostly. Um, and I, I've been enjoying this very much. Thanks, Rachel. It's always great to get a refresher on the, uh, shall we say the the more economic side of things, although you and I both know that the, our, our needs, our basic needs and raw materials are just as much an economic drive as our money and our monetary systems. But always nice to see how these overlap. And I will say, going back to the Ron Paul comment for just a moment, that uh, Ron Paul has always been way, way predating his any of his presidential runs, he has been a friend to food freedom and making yeah. sure that we can access the foods of our choice from the producers of our choice and working with us. And I worked closely with his congressional office way before any of the presidential stuff on, on uh, increasing our access to local foods. Yeah. Yeah. So, so that's, these are all big overlaps. And uh, we also want to say uh, please, if you're listening, like and subscribe. Send us your questions or comments at nourishingliberty at gmail. And, and write a review if you can. Yes, indeed. Uh, that, that helps the algorithms uh, uh, send out the podcast to new people if it's got positive reviews. So be sure and do that if you have the time. And you can find more about... All of this topic, our food systems at lizreitzig.com. That's L-I-Z-R-E-I-T-Z-I-G.com and nourishingliberty.com. So come find us, send us your questions. And Rachel, where do people find you? Um, well, <laughs> I, I guess I would send people just to Lear Capital to su subscribe to the newsletters that I put together every week to keep on top of precious metals and the latest headlines on inflation and 
how the government is destroying our money and how to protect yourself. So that that's where I would send people right now. Um, yeah, just go to learcapital.com. That's L-E-A-R, right? <laughs> yes. yes. There, is no, there is no cross promotion going on. This is just two yeah. brilliant, intelligent, amazing women sharing what we are passionate about. Yep. Yes. All right. And so today's topic, Rachel, we are going to talk about more about raw milk. And we're going to get into some of the nitty gritty details that I love and that I think are important. And these nitty gritty details go in two different directions. One is uh, what you can do in your own kitchen and the awesomeness of uh, culinary experimentation and culinary adventure. And the other avenue, shall we say, is more on the organic chemistry side of things. And uh, it gets complicated. So we're going to just skim the surface there. <laughs> All right. Yeah, this is something that I know very little about. I just, I know that raw milk is good for you because it has enzymes and things that is killed in the pasteurization process and homogenization. Um, and aside from that, I know nothing. Well, then get ready to learn a lot and get excited in an adventurous kind of way because right. you're going to be able to apply some of what you learn immediately if you wish. <laughs> yogurt? Yeah, sort of. Okay, we'll start with yogurt. So many of us know that if you you can make yogurt with different kinds of milks. And many of us know this silly little nursery rhyme about little Miss Muffet sat on her tuffet eating her curds and whey. And so that curds and whey, we could, we could easily say, because what we have a lot of exposure to as Americans is yogurt. But what happens naturally to cow's milk, which is what, again, what most of us are accustomed to, when you have raw cow's milk and you leave it out at room temperature, it turns into clabber. And clabber is very similar to yogurt. It has the curd and it has the whey, but it's not quite yogurt. It has slightly different uh, makeup of uh, bacteria. Is it like and cottage cheese? Well, we're gonna get there. So the clabber is the first step. And, and I've never heard this in, um, in my own life. I've only heard reference to it. So there was this saying in the South, uh, and again, I'm, I, I'm not, I'm probably not going to get this perfectly right because I've only heard reference to it, but it was, it was a saying in the South that said something like, don't leave the baby's bottle out or it, it'll done clabber, right? Like hear that with a Southern accent. And that's just to speak to this natural process. And in the South, of course, it's warm. So that clabber process takes a matter of hours. And what it looks like in your own kitchen, and this is where some of that fun and experimentation can start is if you take a, I always recommend doing these things in glass, glass jars, glass bowls, rather than plastic. If you take a quart of your raw milk and you pour it into a quart jar or you pour it into a bowl and you sit it out, especially in the summertime, like the ideal temperature here is 80 to 90 degrees. And you sit it out a couple hours later, you're gonna have a, a gelatinous milk product. That right there is clabber. And 
it, there's several steps that it goes through. When I was first learning about this and experimenting with it, I wanted guidance on it. And there was no guidance at that time. It was really early on. There was no uh, videos on it. There was, there was hardly any resources on this. So I'll do my best to describe this. And so the stages are, if, if you're doing this at room temperature, let's say 75 to 85 degrees, you're gonna get this Clyber product pretty quickly. And if you leave it, you can then take it, put it in the fridge and that'll keep it from progressing. And that'll be like yogurt. It's a little thinner than yogurt and a slightly different taste, little milder, but definitely thinner. That's your clabber. It's also called drinkable yogurt because you can shake it back up and it's thinner, thin enough to drink, but also thick enough to spoon or use for smoothies or whatever you want. So that's the first stage. If you leave it out at room temperature, then what you'll notice is that the whey will separate from the curds. Okay. And so you'll get a clump of the curds and you'll get a whole bunch of that yellow liquid, which is your whey. So you can strain off the whey. You either pour it off or you strain it through a cheesecloth, dish towel, whatever you have. And then the whey you can use for many other things. You can use it in water as a sports recovery drink. You can use it to help with fermented vegetables because it has so much of the lactobacillus bacteria in it. And you can use it in recipes, all kinds of stuff. And then what you're left with, that, that curd, you can turn that into so many magnificent things. Really? <laughs> yes. So the curd, depending on how much whey is still in there and where in the process you strained it, it could be a little thinner, a little thicker. You know, you got to get your own feel for what you like and the consistency, et cetera. But then you have similar to cottage cheese, or it could be similar to cream cheese, depending on your fat content in the milk. Now, it's not going to be as smooth as cream cheese unless you do some more mixing in it. So some, some really simple, really popular recipes here are you take that curd, and you mix it up with a little bit of salt and some herbs. And then you have a really nice spreadable cheese. I mean, you, you know, those like spreadable cheese dips you can get for parties or whatever. Just in a few hours? Yep, just in, in the right temperatures. I mean, you have to have it, it has to be warm enough. If it's, if it's a little cooler, uh, it, it'll take longer. And I've also noticed, this is just my own observation. I've also noticed that when I do this at a warmer temperature, say between 80 and 90 or 80 and 95, I get a slightly sweeter product and the product. If I do this at a cooler temperature, it does take longer and it gets a little more bitter. Oh, wow. That's interesting. So, yeah. So play around with what you like, because remember, this is all about personal preference. Play around with what you like. And obviously we have to take into consideration our atmosphere. So if we're keeping our homes at a certain temperature in the summertime, maybe consider putting it on a porch or putting it in a garage that doesn't have so much temperature control. In the winter time, 
if I'm looking for that warmth, I will put it in a box with a heating pad. Oh, wow. Yeah. And that heating pad on the lowest setting is often perfect. It's a perfect temperature to get that clabber and that cottage cheese or cream cheese spread pretty quickly. Wow. Leave it overnight, right? If you, if you start this in the evening and you come down in the morning, you're all set to go. Oh, almost forgot. One thing is that clabber or, or really anytime milk starts to sour, that's when you can use it for all kinds of amazing baking things. So think of that as being a replacement for cultured buttermilk. Okay. And it, it's actually got some of the similar tastes. Okay. Yeah. So, so essentially, Rachel, what, what I want the takeaway from all of this to be is that your raw milk stays fresh and, and pleasant to drink for maybe one to two weeks. And after that, if you still have any left or if you just got too much to begin with, it becomes all these other wonderful products. The first stage you go through is you go through the buttermilk stage, the clabber stage, drinkable yogurt. Then you get the curds and whey and they separate a little bit. So then you can use that chunk of curds for anything that you would use cottage cheese for, ricotta cheese for, and in some cases, cream cheese. Okay. You can mix it up to make a spread. You can use it in sauces. You can use it as part of your uh, cheese mix for macaroni and cheese. So it has all of these uses. Many, many, many thousands. Like you cannot even begin to use up all the uses in any in any personal kitchen space. You know, it just it's there's so many. It's a blank canvas. Play with it. Herbs, fruit and honey, uh, sauces, uh, cheese dip. Dry mm. it out, strain it a little more, and make it into a slightly thicker cheese dip. I mean, just get playful. Just get creative and curious with it. Cool. So I have to admit, it's it's kind of it's kind of wigging me out thinking about um, <laughs> eating eating milk that gets to this stage. Um, but I, I I'm gonna be brave and I'm gonna try it. I'm gonna do it next time I get to the farmer's market and get some raw milk. I'll try it. Yay! <laughs> so so. How do we know when it's not safe to eat anymore? Well, I would say go by your own senses. Okay. If it's if it smells bad, then don't taste it. If it smells fine and you taste it and you don't like the taste, don't eat it. Okay. Our our intuition and our our feedback mechanisms are really great. We have these and listen to them. Okay. Yeah, listen to them. That being said, I mean, the when you're getting raw milk from a clean source that that takes care in their processes, the probability that it's going to be unappetizing is much higher than it's going to be harmful. All right. Well, I will keep that in mind. Yeah, and it's 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 unlike pasteurized milk in that the raw milk stays a delicious and wonderful, nutritious food source for a long time. I mean, think about uh, people in past ages. 
how they preserved fresh milk was turning it into cheese. This is yep. such an ages long concept and, and the cheese is varied from location to location based on the bacteria and the yeasts that were in the atmosphere. But this process was the same. I mean, they, they did use um, the enzymes from the calves intestines, right? Originally in cheese making, that is how they curdled the curd enough. And we've got our own adaptations to that. Uh, but, but again, I mean, this is, this is how people in cultures throughout the world have preserved milk for thousands of years. Yeah, so um, let's talk about um, butter. Is it possible to get butter from a gallon of whole raw milk? Oh, absolutely. Yes. And that, I will say, uh, is much harder. <laughs> okay, you got to turn the butter. <laughs> this well, <laughs> I mean, that's, I would say that's the easy step. I, I say the hard step is the separation process. Okay. Because what we know from getting raw milk is that when you have, let's say half a gallon of raw milk and you pour it into one of those wide mouth mason jars, then if you leave it in the fridge, what's gonna happen is that cream is gonna all rise to the top, mm -hmm. right? And so you have this nice cream line and you might get like on a, on a normal wide mouth half gallon mason jar, you might get, I don't know, like three to four inches of cream in the first couple of days. Of course, the longer it sits, the, the more condensed that cream is gonna be at the top. But then the trick is to separate that cream without getting too much of the uh, milk in it. And that is really hard unless you have more specialized equipment than what I have. Okay. And I, I have heard and I have seen people who spread it out on a, um, on a wider surface to make the skimming the cream off easier hmm. and then turning that into butter. Now, if you're lucky enough to be able to access the cream or get the cream pretty easily, the butter process is super easy if you have a KitchenAid <laughs> and yeah. just a little bit harder if you have a jar, you take a jar. So I learned this trick and it works. It definitely works. You take a jar and you put a few of those like decorative marbles in it. Wash them first, please, but put the decorative marbles in, you pour the cream in, and then you just shake. And this is a great activity for kids. It's so <laughs> great for kids. But you go through that process where you see the cream thicken in the jar. And this is why it's so great to use glass because you can see everything. Mm -hmm. You see the cream thicken, and then you see it uh, start clumping together in the little bits of butter and you see the buttermilk starting to separate. And so this is uncultured buttermilk, right? When you're making butter in your home, you're gonna get buttermilk and that's uncultured. It's still incredibly useful for so many things. Um, so you watch this process where the little tiny bits of butter clump together. And then just, it seems like just, you're, you're going from these little grainy clumps to suddenly you have this beautiful, thing of butter. Oh, nice. And of course it gets a little harder to shake, but that's why you pass it around to lots of different kids. <laughs> then you have this beautiful thing of butter. Again, you pour out the buttermilk mm -hmm. and the buttermilk is, I will say, it does not look pretty. 
It really doesn't. Like most of the time, I find these products to look and smell amazing. Buttermilk does not, but it tastes great. Okay. It really does. And it's so good in recipes. <coughs> so um, don't let that weird yellowish greenish color scare you. It's actually really good. <laughs> and, and it's also amazing, Rachel, because uh, the butter, you see the milk, it looks white. And if you're using a really high cream content milk, like Jersey milk, it might look a little off-white, but it's so amazing to watch that white or, or creamy cream turn into yellow butter. It's so cool. And it's so fast. Awesome. It's, yeah, it's like, it's like burning toast. You know, one second it's bread, the next second it's burned. But uh, <laughs> this, this butter, it's like one second it's cream. And then you get the little grainy bits. And then it's smooth, beautiful yellow butter. And it's a really cool process to watch. So most of us are not going to do this every day as our regular food. It's super fun to try. Okay. okay. And, then, and then you know that process. You know what to expect. You know what to look for. I mean, try it maybe three or four times. But you'll see that if you're doing this in the KitchenAid too, this is where you have to make sure your cream is thick enough or it's never going to turn into butter. But you get to watch that where you're looking at it. And, you know, first thing it does is make whipped cream. And then... You're like, oh, what is it gonna, is it gonna, is it gonna? And then suddenly that whipped cream starts to like, the first thing is it starts to splash you. Like little bits of that buttermilk splash out. So use your cover, you know? And then all of a sudden you have these little bits of butter. And then all of a sudden you have this big clump of butter in the mixer. Cool. Yeah, it's really neat. So that butter definitely eat pretty quickly, especially if you don't put salt in it because what I've learned about butter and making it at home is that it's very difficult to get all the bits of buttermilk out. And unless you're rinsing and pressing and rinsing and pressing and rinsing and pressing to get all that buttermilk out, it will quickly turn into something you probably don't want to eat. Now, some people, okay. love it. to me, the butter that has too much buttermilk in it turns into a combination of rancid butter and blue cheese. Oh, wow. So, so you just got to eat, you know, have it already planned, have your bread that you're just about to get out of the oven <laughs> and smear that fresh butter on it. But um, it won't keep for very long. In, in my experience, the homemade butter, unless you're very careful about getting all the buttermilk out, it won't be delicious after a long, after a little while. Okay. Interesting. Um, I wonder if you can talk, uh, what can you tell, uh, me and the audience about, uh, the benefits of raw milk and specifically like the immune system support? Um, can you, can you speak to that a little bit? Yes. And it's actually, I want to get a little bit more nuanced and talk a little bit more about big picture and then get into detail. Okay. So I, I think in general, there's 
I, I've talked to many doctors, scientists, researchers who are working on trying to understand exactly what is it about raw milk, raw milk cheeses, the relationship between gut microbiome and uh, our immune systems. What is it, but what is it specifically about raw milk or raw milk cheeses that promotes and helps our immune systems? And maybe it's out there. I don't have a very clear one sentence answer to that other than to say support for the gut microbiome. Mm -hmm. Right, raw milk does have bacteria in it. This is normal and natural, and that is what turns it into clabber. Mm -hmm. And those bacteria do several things for us, including help us digest the milk and our other foods. Right. So when you think about going back to what I was talking about with clabber, you have this milk. You have all these little bacteria in it, and the reason it turns into clabber is because every period of time, whether that's 10 minutes, 12 minutes, an hour, the bacteria double. And that depends on the temperature that you keep it at. And as they, as they of course, double, they are consuming food to them, which is the proteins and the sugars in the milk, right? So by the time you're getting that, that product, the clabber or the cheese or whey, you're getting this many more bacteria, whatever time period it is, right? And you're getting a product that those bacteria have already partially digested. So it's going to be easier for you to digest it. Okay, so that, that's one component of that uh, kind of large umbrella of how does raw milk help our immune systems? That's a one component. Okay. Another component is the enzymes. And I want to get a lot broader here than just talking about our immune systems with enzymes. But this is an absolutely fascinating topic. This is, gets into the organic chemistry of it. It gets into the nitty gritty microscopic <clears throat> details. And I'm going to try and stay really surface level. Um, but I will encourage anyone who's interested in this to look into it more thoroughly. Mm -hmm. It is absolutely fascinating. So the best description I've heard of enzymes is that they're proteins and they're like tinker toys. They're three-dimensional and that the pasteurization or the heating process flattens them. So these are not something that the, the enzymes themselves are not something that are living, right? They're proteins, but enzymes are proteins that help are, in this case, help our bodies with a chemical reaction. So the highlights here that I wanna talk about are how a couple of these enzymes work with our bodies. We're gonna start with two, because we have, there are so many enzymes, but I wanna point out two in the interest of time and memory, right? Okay. Uh, so, Rachel, to start with, what do you know about lactose? Um, I know that some people are intolerant <laughs> of lactose. Um, I know that me, myself, personally, I, I, I don't know that I'm lactose intolerant, but I can handle milk better when it has it removed. Um, like the lactate type milks, I do better with. Well, so 
yeah, I mean, this is this is an important topic now in our modern world is lactose and the effects it has on us. And so one of the key things to remember is that our bodies, many of our bodies produce an enzyme called lactase. And you see how similar those two words are, right? Because the enzyme lactase helps our bodies digest the lactose. Oh, okay. And some people don't have that enzyme. Some people's bodies don't make it to begin with, or some people's bodies don't carry it into adulthood. We all need it as little babies because we're all designed to digest our mother's milk, mm-hmm. but we don't always take it into adulthood with us. Some of us do, but that enzyme lactase is there in raw milk and helps digest the lactose. So this is why many people who think that they're lactose intolerant actually do just fine on raw dairy or slightly modified. Like when you think about the clabber, when you think about yogurt, when you think about kefir, these are all milk products that have been, the, the lactose is partially digested by the bacteria in there. Right. Right. So you're reducing the amount of lactose while increasing the amount of lactase enzyme through the probiotic activity. Okay. It all kind of comes together full circle, right? Right. Okay. So lactose and lactase. Yes. You've got the lactose, which is the milk sugar. Mm -hmm. And you've got the enzyme that exists naturally in raw dairy. Okay. Lactase, which helps our bodies digest the lactose. Okay. Yeah. So this is why many people just do just fine on raw who cannot tolerate pasteurized. Because again, pasteurization process destroys those enzymes. Another one that I love and I want to talk about is phosphatase. Oh, I've never heard of that. So let me back up a little bit here and we're going to talk about osteoporosis. So you know how many uh, women, postmenopausal women are diagnosed with osteoporosis or a precursor to that, right? And that basically is because they're the calcium in their bones, it's, it's getting depleted. They're not getting enough calcium in their bones. Mm-hmm. And when you think about it, there's so many, there's so many contributing factors. So I don't want to talk about all of that. I want to simply narrow it down to looking at how our bodies know to put calcium in the bones. And that's complex because we need a whole other variety of nutrients for that calcium to go where it needs to go. And that includes vitamin D, vitamin K, it includes uh, magnesium, and it includes phosphorus. Do you hear any similarities between phosphorus and phosphatase? Yeah. Yeah. So there is a relationship there. And so the phosphatase enzyme helps our bodies access the phosphorus and calcium. Wow. And that's... um... The uh, pasteurization process eliminates that in uh, grocery store milk? 
Exactly. Oh, wow. One of the tests, and here we go. Get ready for this. One of the tests for proper pasteurization is to test for the absence of phosphatase. Wow. So what do you think? Do you think there might be a relationship there? It sounds like we would get a lot more osteoporosis if we started pasteurizing our milk and not drinking raw milk like God intended. It does make one wonder, doesn't it? Wow, I never thought about that. I mean, when you look at how incredible and intricate our natural foods are, it's amazing. It's amazing to see these relationships. Like something as simple as this enzyme, which is essential for the body to access and use the phosphorus and calcium. Mm -hmm. To have that enzyme missing, what does it mean? It doesn't mean there's less calcium in the milk. It doesn't mean that there's less phosphorus in the milk. So technically saying there's no nutritional difference between raw milk and pasteurized milk. Technically, if you just measure those nutrients, there could be truth in that statement. However, when you're missing the bridge, that links those nutrients to our body's ability to access them and place them where they need to go, you're essentially taking away all of those nutrients. Wow, or making them not useful. Yes. Your body, wow. See, and you said you didn't know all about the biochemistry stuff. That sounds, that's, you're so smart. Well, it just gets so much more complex and the, the, ionization and the this and the that. I mean, you can really dig deep on this topic and get a thorough understanding of it. Sure. I think the important thing is to get a practical understanding of it. Yes. And unless you're in a lab instead of in a kitchen, um, the practical understanding gets us by in most cases. I mean, I'm also very curious and I always ask why, why, why? I mean, hopefully not too many times to another person, but I'm always <laughs> digging for that answer. And yeah. so I think that natural curiosity too, is it's intriguing. It's like, well, if I understand why this mechanism does this thing, maybe I'll understand this other thing over here. So it's, it's fascinating. And if it intrigues you, explore it, right? It is fascinating. Um, explore it and drink it. <laughs> Yes. Now I will say also, um, uh, many of the components that are valuable and important in raw milk are also in raw milk cheeses and raw milk cheeses are a lot more available than raw milk and raw milk products. So good news there. <laughs> Eat raw milk cheese, right? Okay. That, yeah. The that might be easier to get than um, just going to the farmer's market specifically for raw milk every week. <laughs> yes, we still have lots of options for raw milk cheeses. And of course, going back to culinary delights, they are delicious. Yay. I mean, many of them are. So if you're finding ones that are not delicious, then find the ones that are. Yeah, don't, don't, don't eat stuff that's not delicious. Exactly. Your body is telling you something. 
All right. Well, this has been fascinating, Liz. I have learned a lot about what to do with raw milk past the point where it's normally drinkable. And you've given me lots of ideas for what to do and how to play with it in my kitchen. Yeah, it's like a whole other world that opens up and you get to explore, you get to try fun things, you get to try cooking things. I mean, I'm, I've always been a believer that like part of what I do with raw milk is cook with it. So it's not like I'm yeah. never going to cook with it. I am. And that is part of the fun and it's part of the process and the delight of it. And uh, it's delicious. Fascinating. Well, is that about it for today? That is. I want to hear your results from some of this playing around with it. Oh, no pressure. <laughs> no pressure. None at all. Uh, and, and, you know, Rachel, I mean, it's just, it's, it's interesting to hear over the years what other people have done with the basics and what they've gone on to, whether that's cheese making or, um, making their own kefir every day, kefir and kefir, same thing, slightly different ways of saying it. It's another cultured uh, milk product. It's like, it's like yogurt, but even thinner and even more probiotic. Okay. That's a fascinating history too, but we won't get into that today. We'll just, uh, we'll just leave it at what we've talked about. But remember, remember about that phosphatase and remember about that lactase, those enzymes. Yeah, uh, osteoporosis runs in my family, so I'm definitely at high risk. So that's really good. That, that could um, change my quality of life drastically in, when I get you know older than I already am. <laughs> so thank you for that. Yeah, and Rachel, I think it's interesting too that um, <clears throat> so much about our industrial food system blames the consumer. So if you're lactose intolerant, that sounds like it's a you problem. If, if you have low bone density, that sounds like a you problem. If you are X, Y, or Z, that sounds like a you problem. But really, when you think about it, if the industrial food system is removing the lactase from our food and they are removing the phosphatase from our food and then blaming the results on us, ah, it's a little bit of backwards thinking, right? Wow, you just blew my mind. <laughs> yeah yeah great insight as always thank you so much liz all right rachel we know what we have to do right yes eat for health know your neighbor and grow some food <laughs> talk to you soon all right talk to you next time